In this episode of Investors and Operators, I sit down with Jay Jester, partner at Plexus Capital, a North Carolina-based lower middle market private equity firm. Jay, it is awesome to have you on here. Love to kick off with maybe a snapshot about what Plexus is. You know, um, simplest version, like we're the small deal guys. Um, you know, this is a firm that's been around for 15 years, uh, deals all over the country, certainly in the environment we're in today, you know, love stuff that we can drive to uh, and love the fact that, you know, sort of ACC and SEC country uh, down here is just an awesome, really big market, bunch of great entrepreneurs. But, you know, think of us as, you know, if you have a deal with two to 12 of EBITDA, um, we would love to talk to you about it. And that can be um, minority equity, uh, debt uh, control equity, you know, all the above. Uh, we do a ton of work with independent sponsors uh, who are coming to us looking for both debt and additional equity uh, in structuring these small deals. And, you know, after 20 years uh, with Audax Private Equity in Boston, it was a chance for me to come home uh, you know, come home to North Carolina, which is where I'm originally from, but also come home to the small deal market where I believe you know, there's a quarter million companies in the United States in this zone and 25 to 50,000 deals a year that happen in this ecosystem um, and really excited to you know, be investing in this part of the market again. That's awesome. I, mean, I, I really want to dive into what types of deals you do and specifically with independent sponsors. Cause I think that you guys are one of the leaders that independent sponsors are speaking to, you know, with the first couple of years with debt maven with my other business, like we showed you guys a ton of deals and always thoughtful feedback on them. Um, but let's rewind a little bit and actually maybe to get the gears turning a little bit, let's do some, uh, flash questions, a little lightning round here. So we're going to start off with some, uh, Questions like, number one, if you had a walkout song, theme music, what would that be? A walkout song. I like this. You know, it's funny. I don't listen to a lot of music. I'm a book on tape guy. And whether I'm <laughs> running or rowing. So or... what is your audible walkout book? <laughs> well, no, I'm, I, 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 I have some music, but it is, uh, it's a pretty narrow playlist. Uh, my kids help me out with, uh, they keep the music on around the house, but, uh, I'm gonna have to go with the curve by the Avid Brothers. There we go. Um, and uh, I've actually just watching that. Uh, there's a great documentary on those guys that just came out. Uh, but I think that's a uh, great lyrics, uh, great tune. And uh, if you know, if I had to pick a uh, go-to band, it's probably those guys these days. Done. Next, childhood hero. The easiest question anybody ever asked me. It's got to be my dad. Um, Marine ran a small business. Uh, best husband in the world, best dad in the world, um, and, and brought me into his small business from the time I could form sentences. Uh, really cool to see him very transparently share about the challenges of a small business, and, uh, uh, but uh, a number one hero. Okay, let's talk more about that because I have a one-year-old and a four-year-old and my wife and I are partners in our business. So we're going down that journey together. And, you know, what, what did, I mean, was it like from the very beginning all throughout, you know, high school and college, he ran a small business. Like, what was that exposure? Like, what was it like just kind of being around a family business? Um, so my mom worked in the business as well. Uh, the, uh, my grandfather, who was actually a, uh, um, a tanker in the Philippines in World War II, uh, you know, came back and started, um, you know, it's basically an advertising specialty distributorship. Um, and, and he and my grandmother were in it. My dad came in it. Uh, my uncle came in it. Uh, he was a Marine pilot. Um, you know, it was, it was just the ultimate family small business and it was our topic of conversation advertising specialty distributor the promotional products distributor um mostly for uh uh, uh college bookstores and alumni associations yeah. donor recognition items all kinds of stuff like that um it, it was what we talked about around the table and as they looked at getting into new products and new ideas when we would take a spring break um, we would jump in the station wagon and drive up the East Coast. I remember one year uh, we set sort of Niagara Falls as the turnaround point 
and we drove up the East Coast, stopping off to see a bunch of his suppliers and customers. And, uh, you know, I've, I'm a guy who I've, I've been on a thousand plant tours in my life. And the first one was touring one of my dad's suppliers as an 11 year old kid. And, uh, and as I got a little bit older, he would take me to uh, dinner with his uh, big clients. I remember uh, Mincers, which is an awesome, uh, one of the great college bookstores in the country in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, that Mark Mentor and his father ran uh, was one of my dad's favorite customers and dad would take me in there and show me about merchandising and how their the revenue per square foot that these guys were able to generate and if you ever get to Charlottesville go see this store it's unbelievable um, that's really interesting because one of the things my wife and I have been talking about is how do you balance how do you integrate the family business with the family and to what extent should you and then I'm starting to realize just like we don't want to keep it separated because it's who we are. It what's gives us enjoyment, fulfillment in life and finding ways to teach our kids about money or, Hey, you want to go buy that croissant at Starbucks? No, right. daddy's not going to pay for that. Okay. Four-year-old go figure it out. <laughs> go, go make something and go sell it to somebody who will have pity on you on the street. <laughs> yeah. The, um, I, I mean, without a doubt, um, the most important, not the most important, one of the most important things you can teach a child is the value of the dollar. Um, and there's a, there's a thousand different ways to do that right. And there's 10,000 ways to do that wrong. And, uh, and I think, um, <laughs> you know, I just finished reading the book about, um, what's it called? Coming apart about the uh, super zips and uh, the, uh, the affluence that has come out of the last couple of decades. Um, and I think it's, it's an area where particularly in, um, in big cities and nice neighborhoods where people have failed to teach a kid what it means to earn a dollar uh, and to appreciate a dollar. Um, and I think a great way to do it is, is through sharing, you know, the trials and tribulations of a family business and what it means, um, uh, you know, that, yeah, we want to hire people. We want to pay them more, every one of them. But we have to make the right decision for the business. Um, you know, that's, uh, and you got to figure out age appropriate ways to do it. But I think it's a super important skill set and mindset. It, it's interesting because, you know, every day we go out with the family and work out and we want the four-year-olds like now she's doing like the burpees, the push-ups, and then she wants to get the croissant or whatever it is at, you know, the cafe afterwards. But then how do you, do you tie the incentive? Like if you do this, then you get money, then you can buy that. Cause I don't want to have that incentive structure of if you exercise, then you get money, then you can buy a croissant. But I'm yeah. trying to figure out like, how do you build that incentive system? But this might be like a whole nut. This is a part two vlog yeah. on the Jester family lessons. <laughs> <laughs> and you can, um, you know, it's interesting to use the workout because it's, it's not unlike what I do with myself every day is like, yeah, I want to eat that. I want to eat those two donuts. And if I translate that into burpees, I don't want to eat those two donuts that bad. <laughs> it's, you know, donuts good, but it ain't worth, you know, 120 burpees. That, that's a that's a good point and it makes you think about habit change yeah. and so what do you think are some of the best habits that you have formed maybe either recently or kept throughout your life and how those habits have just stayed in place either you know personally or and how it also relates to you know your day-to-day -day in bd uh, um yeah this, this ties into a couple of the questions that you had asked. Um, and, uh, you know, one of them, what would I go back and say to my 21 year old self or my, my new self and uh, my young self in, in just in the BD role. Um, and I would say a big part of that is figuring out or translating the cost of things. Um, and, and I would, one of the habits that I have developed fairly recently is I am opening Excel for everything. And, and by that, I mean, um, every time you hire a bank to sell a company, if you are starting over on that fee negotiation, just based on the four banks you talk to about that one deal, you are way behind the curve. 
you need to collect that data and understand that data and how that data has changed and how it's different in hot markets and cold markets. It's all right in front of you. And the discipline and the habit is write it down and save it and categorize it and make it actionable so that you can, you can rely on that data the next time you need it. Um, understanding that you're going to look at a thousand deals a year you're going to try to visit 80 to 100 of those to close eight to 10 of those. Whatever the cycle is, that's really important. Um, you know, understanding how many deals a deal source is going to bring you each year is really important. Turn it around and understand the economics of the deal source. Is the guy who's selling you that company, how many deals is he going to sell in a year? And that was a huge epiphany for me about a decade ago was to realize, yeah, at Audax, we were going to do 10 to 12 platforms a year and 100 add-on acquisitions. The guy that I'm talking to is trying to close three deals in 2014. That is a misalignment that you don't understand unless you really dig in and walk a little bit in the other guy's shoes and understand the math of his world. So do you think, can you state the point again? Because I think you made a lot in there, but is the key point that it's getting more granular and writing down at a deeper level that, sorry, I'm, I'm misstating your point. Nope. Um, and, and I put a lot of points into one answer. So I'll try to <laughs> that up. I told you, I warned you about this. The, um, the habit, the really important habit is to, to dive deep in the data. And even though it may not present itself to you as data in a nicely organized spreadsheet, take all the answers and all the nuances of the business that you can put in Excel and put it in Excel and study it. Understand how, try to understand the math of the banker on the other side of the negotiation. Um, understand uh, and, and take the time to, to write down and understand the economics of a fee negotiation and track it. And I would say that is one of the most important habits for me is because in BD, you span such a, you know, over the course of a year, you'll touch so many different things uh, that it, I think it's important to step back and, and pull the data out of that year of activities um, so that you make better decisions. On the same topic of BD, what advice do you have for BD professionals who are kind of just getting started? And, you know, what are some of the best BD interview questions either that you like to ask or that they have asked you? Um, so I hit the second part of that first. Um, you know, the questions that I like to ask, I, I love to ask people how they organize themselves. You know, what is your system for tracking all the things that you need to do? You know, have you got a, what, what is your digital assistant um, to do tracker? Uh, are you a notebook guy? Are you somebody who's got an app? Um, how do you think about organizing your day? Because I think that is one of the, you know, environmental risks of BD is you are, you can get dragged, uh, you know, a thousand miles wide and an inch deep, and you have to be really disciplined in organizing yourself. Um, so I love to hear how somebody does that. Um, how, how do you do it? How have, you know, in your decades of doing this, like, what is your system now? Um, it, you know, it, it is uh, it is constantly evolving. Um, uh, there are a bunch of digital assistants, and I and and I love the fact that they've translated from a Microsoft tablet to an iPad to an iPhone. Um, you know, the the current system I really like is OneNote, uh, and how that ties in. Uh, and I would say OneNote tied in with SharePoint is is really useful. Um, the mentality of late is to start each day looking at that massive list left over from yesterday and just say, what are the three things that I got to do today? Mm. And um, uh, there's a couple of different, uh, I think it's Warren Buffett that really talked about 
you know, the importance of what are the three big things that need to be accomplished, especially if you get more senior and just focusing in on those um, as opposed to, you know, it's not about trying to get, nobody's trying to get 20 things done. It's three things. And when you get them done, you can take the this is really This is really, really helpful. Like how do you structure your day or your week? For example, do you time block certain parts of the day or the, or the weeks? The, um, and it's, uh, it's another, uh, uh, book. I think it's, I'll make it the author on it. It's Pink, uh, uh, the book's called when, hmm. um, and just talks about, you know, understanding. And it's been a, uh, you know, something in COVID, I feel like I've gone through an eating phase, a workout phase, and now a sleep phase <laughs> and realizing how critical, uh, sleep is and not traveling as much. Um, you know, you really appreciate it's it's easier to see the impact of a really good night's sleep on all of those things, you know, when you're not on airplanes all the time and moving around and, you know, grabbing a nap on a flight um, and trying to tie in the different parts of the day and, and how your brain is functioning mm. with the activity. So, for example, I think for me, the most difficult part of the day is probably 1.30 p.m. to 4.30 p.m., mm. Um, that is the lowest energy. Um, and there's a lot of data that would support that a lot of mistakes, a disproportionate amount of mistakes get made in that time zone. Um, so that's the time of day when I am, you know, I might even take a long walk, take my iPhone, you know, catch up on a bunch of calls when I can walk and talk. Uh, and, and that activity really helps. What, what's the name of the book? It's called W-A-V-E Wave. Sorry, when? W-A-V-E-N. Um, the um daniel pink the, the scientific secrets secrets of perfect timing yeah it's, 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 you know it's like um i thought it was a terrific big concept book everybody's a little bit different on that um but i thought that was a really interesting one uh so uh, reading investment memos really difficult decisions as an organization we are pushing those decisions earlier in the day mm. And when, when you're fresh, everybody's caffeinated, everybody's had a good night's sleep, that's when, you know, the high stakes, um, deal pricing, um, you know, difficult decisions and difficult conversations uh, are, you know, I'm trying to tie those into the right time of day for that. Yep. Um, uh, you know, so I, I think things like that, quick emails, you know, do you have a one hour time block in the day when this is? Is that part of your one your one thirty to four o'clock time block when you're just kind of rapid fire for an hour or so? Or how do you think about those other blocks? Um, that is a great question for me. That is usually after dinner. Um, I've been really trying hard to be present, uh, you know, for the Zoom meetings. You know, not multitasking. I'm, I I uh, I can slip into some bad ADD habits and you know watch the phone ring during you know, during a discussion and, uh, and try to multitask and to try to turn all that stuff off, like you and I both did at the beginning of this, uh, to really be present and focused on one thing at a time and then save the, the emails and the voicemails for the end of the day. So you'll have a time block after dinner to kind of go through everything that's not, do you, do you turn off your email? Do you turn off, for example, there's this book called Deep Work and that really, showed me that for certain periods, I have to turn off my phone. I have to turn off Slack. I have to turn off email, which is like, I'm horrible at this, but that's yeah. one of the things I have to do. And it's like go into the zone for 90 minutes because of that transition time between tasks and the residue from the previous task to the next one. I realize I'm not actually getting deep quality work done. Well, so here's a life hack for that is just get old. <laughs> <laughs> And one of the things, like I talked about walking and, and I've gotten where I need longer arms, um, you know, and so walking with just my iPhone, it, it, it gives me such a headache to try to read email and keep up with text that I can <laughs> just walk and talk uh, and I'm not at risk. And uh, so that one, that's one of the nice things about, you know, in the 50 plus categories, it's not like I'm on a Peloton bike trying to also read email. <laughs> um. Yeah, so my yeah, team. <laughs> yeah, effectively, I'm turning, I'm turning that off. And I'll tell you the other thing uh, that has helped me is removing, and I don't want to malign anybody else's uh, 
product, but um, the the really ad- intentionally addictive social media platforms, just removing those from my phone. I've got them on my iPad. Every once in a while, it's nice to check in and see what your friends are doing, especially in this kind of environment. But but just getting those off of the phone and and out of reach is helpful. Yeah. Um, and um, and I've spent more time thinking about my phone as you know, really text, voice, and and Zoom. You know, connecting one on one with people is a more useful deployment of the phone than. Do you have uh, notifications on your on your email on your phone, or have you turned those off? I've turned those off, and I've also turned them off on. I have a uh, we call it an iWatch. Yeah. Um, and again, no, this is good. I'm glad we're going iWatch. down this rabbit hole. This is like super tactical, but it, but I think that this is important to the larger topic of how to be a high performer in business development or whatever pursuit, because all of these things take away, all of these distractions take away from our greatness in a particular project or career path. And I think it was Brennan Brichard who said something to that effect, like, you know, distractions take away from your greatness. Um, but maybe- I, I, I frame it in like, what are, the, what are the things that only I can do today? And again, as a partner in the firm, that is that is an easier luxury than somebody starting out new. But backing up a little bit and saying, "Am I just chipping in out of my insecurity to to you know get a class participation grade?" And and as an institution at Plexus, we spend a lot of time. We call it the the racy matrix. You know who's responsible, who's accountable, who's consulted, and who's informed and try to remember where you are in those four categories. Can you say those again? So it's RACI, R-A-C-I. Okay. Are you responsible for it? Are you accountable for it? Are you consulted on the decision? Are you simply informed of what's going on? And, and we organize ourselves around that framework and the stuff where I'm an R or an A is really important. And, and, and are you the doer? Are you the guy who's next on the line? And then there's a whole bunch of other things where people will come and say, wow, Jay, we want to, there are three banks we're considering hiring. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, and then there's other stuff, you know, somebody says, hey, we are hiring this bank, just wanted to let you know. And so you can, you can know what, what, your, what, the expect, what the institutional expectation is of you as a business leader in, in those decisions. And by pre-establishing that, uh, I think you save a lot of time, um, you know, because you, you sort of you sort of laid out who's responsible for what ahead of time, and it's a, I think it's an important way to think about how you 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 know how you organize your day as well. That's really interesting because I've been struggling with that in the past year in particular as we start to have full time team members and go from you know the freelancer small business to building a team and the framework I'm currently using. I just thought about this was like Dade, which is like, okay, I'm going to either dominate it means like I'm doing it or I'm going to automate it. For example, use X.AI to automate, automate the responses for scheduling, or I'm going to delegate it or I'm going to deprioritize it or I'm going to eliminate it. But that's, and I've been trying to think through my day and using that framework to say like, do I really need to do that task? Or do I need to spend the time training the team to do that? Because that's like, in order for this business to actually grow, you know, our goal is to get from, you know, for four person full-time team. Um, now we wanna to get to 10 and we'll probably steady st- or target stays like probably 25 people, but I, I have to establish the, that managerial framework, which I'm not good at. Just so I'm wondering, like, what, when, what have you found good to manage your team as you growing as a manager? Yeah, well, and I would say that the racy is is really it's a, it's a really useful way to think about things. And as you're doing your prep work for a meeting, go back and say, you know, what 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 six what did we pre-agree my input would be on this? You know, I'm I'm there to answer a question and provide some context and perspective. Or am I actually the person who's responsible for this outcome? 
and participate in a meeting or a decision in a very different fashion based on that. But go back. Yours was D-A-D-E. I got dominate, automate, delegate, dominate, eliminate. Dominate, automate, delegate, deprioritize, eliminate. And deprioritize can be like, it's important, but not right now. And I'm horrible at that because I think everything's important right now. Yeah, yeah. And I just, and I, one of the things I also notice is that the dopamine hit or whatever it is that comes from doing 10 small things feels really good. And it feels like you get momentum. And I would use that in the morning as opposed to doing deep work first, like let's say a proposal that might take one or two hours of deep thought. But what I realized is like, I need to get that first because that's actually the most important thing. Those are your rocks instead of the pebbles. And then I was like, well, how do I get my energy up in the morning? So I am focused and I have solid energy. And then I realized like, oh, it's called exercise. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. for the past nine months, but the other thing that gives me a lot of energy are meetings or doing like interviews like this. The downside of the meetings or the interviews is that then my brain goes into freaking creative mode and I'll think of 20 things as opposed to the most important thing that needs to get done that day. Right. Um, I, I think that's now part... Now we have a third episode that we got to talk about. <laughs> this is great. This is just an episode talking about future episodes. We'll have the, the gesture series. Um, but, you know, when, when you look back at uh, back on the, the, the thread of business development, you know, so let's kind of clarify what advice is that for BD professionals who are just getting started? Uh, sorry, in which category, though? Um, general. I'm a, a, I'm a newbie. I just started at a fund. I am the, you know, uh, new person on the BD team. I'll call it a three person BD team or number two. Like yeah. what is your advice to me so that I can absolutely crush it in this first year or two? You know, master your habits and really be intentional about where, you know, where you're going to deploy your time and where you're going to move the needle for the organization. You know, if you've been brought into the BD role with the mindset of like the best mindset to bring in a new BD person is you are our eyes and ears and historian for this firm. Like go out there and and help our firm build a great relationship with the other firms that matter to us. I think that's the positive way to set it up. And that means that you have to organize the team to, to build great relationships that will be profitable for your firm. The bad way to launch BD is like, hey, we, we know all our most important people. You go off on your own and try to turf up some marginal stuff that we didn't think of. Like I would say, if that's the mandate someone's giving you, then what you should say is I quit <laughs> and go find a firm that says to you, we, we need you to bring it all together, to organize. And you'd ask a question about, uh, uh, you know, what's a, what's a great example and I was, I was or a, uh, a non-business training area for this kind of leadership. And I was, uh, I was talking to my, my youngest uh, child is my daughter, she's 20. And uh, in high school, um, she became a crew coxswain. And, and I, I wrote a little bit uh, growing up and in the new boats, uh, the coxswain's in the front and back to back with the four rowers. And so she's, the old, she's steering, she's got visibility forward. The only thing she can't see is the engine room, is what's going on. And I think that is the greatest metaphor because she has to be looking out at the body of water, at the course, at the competition, she has to be communicating to the engine room what's going on, where we're going. She has to be able to feel, you know, who's struggling, who needs a word of encouragement without looking at them. And, um, and, and I think that's the BD role, is you are uh, a lot of times alone, the only one looking the direction that you're looking um, there's a bunch of other people that are, you know, they're focused on each other. They're focused on these project goals. They can see what the other rowers are doing. They can see the blades. And, uh, 
and you got to figure out how to how to feel your organization, the strengths and weaknesses, and and win the race. And and to me, that you know, all of those skill sets, uh, and that means that in practice, and you got to study, and you got to watch other boats, and you got to see the uh, see the mechanics of the system that you might not get to be uh, in the weeds of every day. Let's unpackage that earlier point on how it shouldn't be, hey, I'm the head of BD, I'm going to focus on these tier one, tier twos, you focus on everyone else. Because that it does seem like a logical approach in terms of I'm going to focus on the most important relationships because I've known them, they know me, they know the firm. But there are all these other bankers that would be considered like tier two, tier three that could have deals, but we just don't talk to them. So what is why is that particular strategy not work? Or maybe I'm not, not understanding the, the, the point or the motivation behind or the point you're making on the question. And I guess what I would say is um, a typical, particularly an upper mid-market private equity firm, uh, the universe gets pretty small. You know, I think there may be, de depending on the size of your fund and your sector focus, there are probably 10 to 100 deal sources that actually matter. And there will be some really important ones at the top of your funnel that have shown you hundreds of deals. You've closed dozens of deals. You've sold through that firm multiple times. And to me, involving your BD, your very best BD person in helping optimize those relationships is the best use of that marginal hour. And and, and I'll give an example. There's a, let's say there's a great, you're a healthcare focused firm or you're a firm that has healthcare and industrials. And um, your healthcare team has really connected uh, with this one investment bank and one investment banker who's the healthcare specialist in this large firm. And there's just great trust there. At the margin, you are better off leveraging that trust and that history and all the fees that have been paid back and forth to then expand into the other parts of that investment bank than to try to go start from scratch and build a brand new relationship. So the, the mid, the number two, number three, those resources, a majority of those resources should be spent on those top relationships to go deeper into them. Is, is, is that the... I think it's part of that. And I think it's also acknowledging that a deal professional, and, I, and it goes back to my earlier point of, you know, figuring out each, each participant's economics, but a, a, a deal guy who's trying to close one or two new platform deals a year and then optimize and create equity value in those deals. He's not thinking, and let's say the healthcare guy, He's not thinking like, wow, I really need to make sure that we see all the industrial flow from this same firm. He's just thinking, I want to see more healthcare deals. He's not incented to branch out and think about that. The BD person should be in the seat able to say like, wow, Lincoln International, they have, uh, we, have a, we just mind meld with them on healthcare. And we know the leaders of the firm, they trust us. They trust our valuations. When we say we're going to do something, they know we're going to do it. We can, we can build, we can expand more profitably off of that foundation than I can go send somebody out to find the brand new firm that I've never talked to before. You, you do need to do both. You need to develop new relationships, but I think the highest and best use of senior, um, well-trained BD talent is to figure out how to optimize the relationships you already have and grow the brand that way rather than you know, just go down for dollars and see if you can turf up a new source that your firm has never heard of. Yeah, that's interesting because this is making me also think about what is the definition of a good relationship? What does a relationship mean? And I ask that because over the past four years when we've really stepped up our content on LinkedIn, there might, I might go, two years having never met a person. And then, you know, when we had that first encounter at like a ACG event or whatever it is, they said, Hey, I've been following your story for the past couple of years. I really dig it. Some flavor of that. 
So the quality of that relationship is no longer cold, but it's warm. And it just makes me think about the value of marketing to complement the BD efforts and also rethinking what, what a relationship is and how that is built, how that is maintained. And maybe it's for those tier twos or tier threes, the way that you effectively cover that from a BD strategy perspective or from junior resources is by doing those types of touches to complement the one-to-one meetings. So the segmented email, the LinkedIn post, the types of video, the podcast that you're on, they still feel like they're developing a relationship, like they know who you are through those means. I mean, I look at it and like think about different types of marketing, like a brochure. Like what happens in a brochure? It's a one-way communication and we don't, nobody uses brochures anymore. But if I were to, and, and when I first started out, we spent a lot of time, you know, what is our, uh, our little folder and it had deal announcements in it and what was it? And we tried to, you know, create these words that probably no one ever read <laughs> that said, here's why you should trust us. And that's like, when you think about the purpose of that versus the, you know, the relationship you and I have developed over the last month. You know, I, uh, at the beginning of this call, we figured out we both have a connection in North Carolina. I understand more about your business. I understand that you have a family business like the family business that I grew up in. I understand you have little kids and you're trying to think of ways to teach them about business. You understand that I have college age kids. And as you build that relationship and, and I get to start thinking about you not as a service provider, and you're not thinking of me as one of 10,000 private equity firms in the country. We now have a relationship. I know a little bit about what keeps you up at night and the things you're trying to solve and vice versa. That to me is, that, that is the seedlings of what becomes a profitable business relationship later is me understanding your world and you understanding my world, which doesn't happen in a brochure. And I think you know, it's kind of a convoluted way of getting there, but and I doing I think, that in a memorable way so that there are, cause you're doing so much that level of depth on your calls, on your zoom meetings, but there has to be something memorable. So like, Oh, you're the person who has this, or, you know, you're the, you know, you're the pilot who now works at this firm, something that, because when you're having all these relationships, how do you stick out over time? My answer to that is um, really good ears. You know, that there's nothing I'm going to say, in the, especially in the craziest year ever, that is going to be able to get implanted on your brain. You meet too many people. There's just too many things happening. Um, what you will remember is meeting someone who actually listens to you and actually cares about what's going on in your world. I, I think there was a great study and I've been trying to find it. I read a, it was like a, um, a thesis paper or something that I read. It must've been 20 years ago, but it studied, they actually did an analysis of what made people enjoy a social gathering. And they tested the music, the other guests, and they did all these experiments where they actually brought in like Nobel laureates at the party. And at the end of the study, you know, like so good food, a lot of cocktails, no cocktails. What was it? The people that enjoyed the party the most were the people who met someone who they felt was interested in what they had to say. And I think that is that is one of the truest things that's ever been said. And and I think it's true in business development is if you can figure out, if I can figure out how to understand what makes you tick and how to actually listen to you and hear you and understand you, that is my best chance of getting remembered. And that is also my best chance of building a profitable business relationship. So let's kind of go along that same thread and talk about uh, people interviewing for BD positions. You know, in all the people that you've interviewed have the ones that stuck out kind of flipped the script and not gone into their personal sales mode, but gone into just like, hey, here's how I would approach this and make it into a discussion and asking you, asking about the firm, um, or what is that balance between them 
selling themselves their creds versus the other approach of just asking you a million questions. Like, how do you guys do this? How do you guys segment your CRM? And then kind of going into that type of discussion. You know, I've, I feel like I've come full circle on this in that I think the, the best interviews are the ones that you don't even know are interviews. <laughs> you know, as soon as somebody starts selling, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm kind of shut down. You know, you, it, um, I am coming up with my canned answers of why we're not looking for anybody right now. And when you just meet someone who says, you know, hey, I've been in, I've been in real estate forever. And I think real estate is really similar to private equity. And I would just be curious in your perspective on that. And we have a fascinating conversation around like two and 20. It's very similar. Um, you know, you could parallel the roles in real estate developer and deal team all the way down to the analyst role. And our worlds are exactly the same, except they say cap rate and we say multiple. And that's a fascinating conversation. And at the end of that, I'm like, man, you would be great in this field. And as soon as somebody comes at me with like, hey, you know, let me read you my resume. I, I'm in, I'm in, I'm not trying to be, but I'm in shutdown mode because I've had that conversation 50,000 times. And I think the, the really interesting interviews are the ones that don't feel at all like interviews. And that applies, I think, also in speaking with sellers. 100%. The, is as soon as, and it is so interesting to do. And I, um, uh, 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 oh, what's the show? The uh, the Bachelor or the Bachelorette? Oh, so I got to plug in my my computer. It's dying. <laughs> um, okay, so you're saying the Bachelorette? <laughs> and I, and I, I'm not going to live long enough to invest in a season of that again because it is it is mind numbing. <laughs> but the final episode when you watch and i don't even know if they still do it this way but in the first three seconds when either the guy or the girl starts talking you know what's going to happen you know when you hear that you're really nice but really like you but and it is exactly the same thing when you're talking to sellers when you're talking to the winning investment bank for the pitch the science of that moment is the only reason that I will sit down and watch uh, the, the, the last episode of the season uh, is because I, I think that moment is a lot of what happens. And, and I think the selling of that, uh, you know, as soon as somebody starts selling too hard, it's over. When, you know, you look at where you are at now and all the years and years of refining your craft, who do you think has really influenced you in you now becoming an expert in this profession? Everybody that ever took the time to talk to me. Uh, you know, um, I mean, obviously we talked about Glen Oak and, um, you know, coming right out of North Carolina, uh, doing a couple of years investment banking, and then getting to work alongside Glenn, uh, he's got to be number one. Um, and we've we've talked about these before. Just his, he treated everybody the same. Um, he was friend. He's your friend first, uh, and 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 he's just he just builds relationships based on genuine affection and friendship, and. Um, uh, hugely impactful. Erskine Bowles was tremendously impactful. You know, that was actually my first job out of Carolina was working for Bowles Hallwell Connor in Charlotte, North Carolina. I think really one of the first mid-market, you know, non-Wall Street boutiques. Uh, they built an unbelievable franchise in the early days of private equity and, and seeing Erskine's passion for North Carolina, passion for small businesses, and just unbelievable expertise um, that was really powerful to see. What do you think um, was unique about Erskine? If there were one or two things, they, <laughs> um, there's not only one or two things. He's one of a kind and just an awesome human being. And go, you know, go lose yourself on the internet for a couple hours on his Wikipedia page. Um, as, as somebody who is, uh, 
you know, again, passionate for small business, passionate for the country. Uh, and he has done, you know, his work with Alan Simpson uh, on taking on the impossible projects that he's uh, tried to take on for the benefit of, of everybody else. His phrase was always, uh, make sure you are taking time to contribute to the community woodpile. Um, he did that uh, more than um, just about anybody I've ever known. Does that mean, so I think that concept everyone gets in terms of impact and community, but what does that mean to you in terms of how you, you know, live your month to month? For example, do you have like an impact goal for the community on saying, I'm going to spend X amount of hours volunteering or X amount of dollars on this particular cause? Like, how do you think about impact in your life? Um. My wife and I, we've been involved in a bunch of neat uh, charities and causes, um, uh, you know, Village Partners International, their work in Uganda. Um, and and I, I, um, all of those causes are really fun and really important. And I've kind of come around to the point that, um, again, back to our conversation around focus, is I'm trying to have an impact. I'm trying to have an impact on the middle market. Um, I am super passionate about the middle market. And as I step back and look at, you know, when I, when I sort of thought like, what could I do to help the most people? Um, and what I've sort of realized is if, if I can figure out how to be high character in the way that I'm doing this job, uh, if I can be a great partner for these small businesses, if I can help uh, a family-owned business raise some institutional capital, um, hopefully those businesses are going to have a, a better chance of succeeding and growing, and it's going to create great careers, and it's going to allow all those employees and partners and management team members um, to succeed and be prosperous. That's how I can have the most impact on the world. Um, and, and maybe there will come a point when I say like, you know, I want to do something completely different and I want to go full time into one of these other charitable causes. But right now it has been a lot of fun to say, um, I think I can help the world most by being a really good, high character, high integrity investor in small businesses. That's and, um, and I'm, and it, if there's one thing that can get me on my soapbox and get me really PO'd is people that want to come down on private capital. It's like this evil robber baron, uh, 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 you know, raider mentality. And I think one of the most American things that you can do is invest in a small business and help that business grow. And I, I think the, the, the long arm of doing that well is where I think I can have the most impact on uh, things like education, on, uh, on mentoring young people, on helping uh, challenged and impoverished communities become more successful um, is you know, to help those businesses. And I'm super proud of it. When you look back at the 20 plus years and all the businesses that you've invested in with the firms, is there a particular story that kind of sticks out and you realize like, oh my God, like, this is why I do this. Like, this is why I love doing this. Like all of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm um, not asking to choose between your babies here, but <laughs> didn't know uh, if there was a- um, You know, and I, I'm trying to remember specifically, but the cases where, uh, and there was one CFO and we sort of had the celebration closing dinner and it was a great deal. And the CFO, um, when we hung around the bar afterwards and, and had one more drink before while we were waiting on a uh, car and he got out a, um, a piece of jewelry that he bought for his wife. And, um, and he just shared that, uh, you know, he shared a bunch of background about his family and how meaningful it was to be able to do that. And, um, and it just, it humanized, you know, why we do what we do. Um, and, you know, have seen, have had guys write notes about 
um, you know, things they got involved with in the next chapter of their career, um, or, you know, sharing stories that they'd moved on and their number two had stepped into the leadership role at the company, you know, that's, um, that's why we do it. And to see, um, uh, you know, the guy that's written the book, uh, Adam Coffey, uh, was one of, and it's a great book around, uh, just sort of a, uh, an overview of the private equity experience, uh, really fun to read his book. Um, and, and sort of hear about his life story told through his lens, uh, that's just fascinating. And, you know, the, for me, the biggest thing are the, the, the continuing friendships, um, you know, some North Carolina guys who did a, a concrete deal, uh, uh, in Raleigh, uh, years ago, I think it was the 10th, uh, platform deal out of, um, a couple hundred now that have been done, uh, at Audax, um, and, and the partners in that business, uh, the original owners in that business are still great friends. You know, to me, that's the, um, that, that's a deal done well is when the, the friendships outlive the, the life of the deal. The, the point about impact, you know, I think superficially we could think, like, oh God, it's BS. Like my job is where I impact, but actually no, you know, I was thinking through my experience in the past two years with this and I was like, okay, I'm just you know, doing LinkedIn stories and video for people in private equity and making them look cool. But then I realized like after like three, the first three months is like, what we're actually doing is creating stories that form deep relationships and allow people to see the full self. And then I, that, at that moment, there was this one post that we did and it was for um, uh, Lauren Mulholland at Middle Ground and just kind of talking about how they celebrate, you know, they had a deal closing and a fun closing. And then to see the comments in that and other people sharing their stories about how they celebrate a deal closing. I don't know what it was about that specific post, but it just made me realize like, this is where I can have impact. Like this is where I can create meaning between people in this community that I've been a part of for 10 years. And that was the aha moment that it gave so much more depth. And then over the past 18 months, just, you know, this is what vlog number 45 or something like that, that we've done. And then it just realized like, it, it, it's, it's okay to, that I can have an impact and define it within this industry, as opposed to, you know, the veteran nonprofit and that stuff that I work, like this stuff can be equally meaningful and it just took two years to realize that. You know, and I go back and, um, you know, there's a couple of different volunteer boards um, that I've been involved with. And what I found was that tr if you really want to have impact, it is hard to do it on a part-time basis. you got to figure out how to really throw yourself into something. And, um, and I think we've got a, a hundred million stories about things that we half-assed uh, you know, just because of all the distraction and the ADD world that we live in and the stuff that you're most proud of is the stuff that you figured out how to hyper-focus on. And, and you can be on a volunteer board and figure out with 40% of your time how to hyper-focus on that and really make a difference. And obviously that's impact. And I think I've sort of figured out my, in my own limitations that I just don't have that much range. <laughs> and, um, and if I really, you know, at, at, there's... 35 awesome people at Plexus. And every single one of those people deserves 100% of my time and focus and energy. And, and I'm not looking for other things. There is more than, you know, I, 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 to do this right in one of the most competitive fields that there is, I, it takes everything I got. <laughs> I can't do this part time. And, um, and I would say the same thing of the companies we invest in. I, I, I don't think I can look at a CEO and not tell them I am 100% aligned with you and on board with you and doing everything in my power to give you the tools and the capital you need to succeed. Um, that, you know, I, I guess I'm long-winded way of saying I'm in, a, I'm in a zone where it's more focus on less things to have an impact. And I'll go back and reiterate the point that I think investing in small companies is worthy and noble, and it makes a difference in our economy and our country, and and it has really long, uh, long tail if you do it right.
Sounds like so much of your life is, you, you seem very intentional and very okay. thoughtful and intentional. Um, so what do you think are some of the best choices that you have made in your life? Um, uh, way up kicked my coverage when I got married. Um, uh, the, uh, and a, the partnership that I have with my wife is everything um, and foundational. And, and I, you know, when I talk about the focus, I have this mental image of, um, I, I on the home front, I literally sit on Janice's shoulders. This, the foundational stuff that she does that allows me to go travel and, and, and try to help build Plexus and do these deals is only made possible by the, by her doing the same thing and raising our children and creating our home and, and our community involvement, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that, that's number one. Um, and how I'll, do you, uh, that you have, um, go ahead. I'll, I'll come back to this point. The, uh, 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 a preacher and a wonderful friend, um, the guy who married us uh, uh, in Tampa shared something with me. He said, uh, he said, focus the same energy and intentionality on your marriage uh, that you do on everything else. And, and I kind of looked at him quizzically and he's like, said, you get an annual checkup on your dog, your HVAC system, your car, your teeth. <laughs> and he said, think about the areas in your life where you get professional help on a regular basis because you're not an idiot, you know? <laughs> and like, are you putting at least that much energy and resources and thought into making sure that your marriage is solid? And that was a great point for a young man to hear. I was, we were, uh, we may have only been a year married at that point. And, and, and to this day, um, that guy has the best marriage that I've ever seen. Um, and it was awesome for me to hear that he, that he put that much energy and professional help into making it even better. Um, and not getting complacent in that that's, um, you know, that listening to that advice is probably one of the best things and most important things I've ever done. That's awesome. What, um, what are some of the big differences between like the husband that you are today versus when you were, uh, when your kids were, you know, under five and how, have, and like, basically I'm asking for some free advice for a one year, a father of one year old, a four year old, <laughs> Like what, it, how, how, what are some things that I just need to keep in mind? Because it feels very chaotic around here. And it feels like the last thing we're thinking about is our marriage. And it's like, okay, kids alive, healthy, good business. Do we, are we going to pay the bills? Oh, by the way, we haven't had a date night in how many, in how many quarters? <laughs> um, uh, we're getting in danger. I'm really trusting in your editing ability on all this stuff that you're getting out of me because you can cobble <laughs> this together. Um, uh, and I wish I'd been better at this more consistently, but the point that you just made, and I think a lot of, uh, you know, people early on in their career tend to take the attitude of, you, you know, you walk through the door and the little kids are getting ready to go to bed and it's like, give the wife a peck on the cheek. And then you take the remaining energy that you have from an exhausting day and you get on the floor and you're playing Legos and you're laughing and you, and you, you put all of that energy on the kids and then you give your spouse the leftover after the kids go to bed. And that is backwards. And I think um, to, if you could find a way to walk in the door or return from the business trip and, and take a knee with the kids, say, kids, I love you guys. I really want to play with you, but I need 10 minutes with mommy and we're going to sit right here on the couch and I need you guys to be quiet and play. And I just want to focus on mommy because she is my partner and she is the most important thing. And I think, um, and I have, I, I, if I could redo a lot of my life, it would be to do that a lot more consistently. And, and I bet if you did that five days in a row and you would see the smiles on your faces as they look at you and your wife connecting, just sitting there on the couch talking, 
And uh, there was a guy, uh, we did it through our church, but he called it couch time of do your couch time in front of your kids so that they know how solid that relationship is. I don't think there's anything better that you could do as a dad. And, and I think a lot of people make the mistake of coming in and saying, oh, I have to focus on the kids before they go to bed. I have to let them know that they're important. And uh, uh, the most important thing would be show them how important mom is. That's and, and I think you'd raise healthier, better adjusted kids that will themselves turn into be, uh, you know, better partners and spouses down the road. That, that, that's a really good reminder. And we started and stopped this practice where during the day in, you know, in the past nine months during COVID, we would spend like 30 minutes at noon, just walking around the block together or whatever that is. But I think we need to get back to that of being intentional about blocking off. Like, why is it that the best hours during the best days, most days of the week are spent away or not focused on the people we care most about? And so it's not that you have to spend eight out, you know, 9 a.m. to noon with your wife or your partner, but it's maybe it's finding that 30 minute block when you have really good energy. That might be at 11 a.m. And just saying it is it is part of my business. It is part of my day to day routine, especially during quarantine. We're not traveling like we're this is part of us. You're not getting the leftovers at 730 when our face is in the plate after dinner and the kids are asleep. I, I, I think you're right on. And I would say. uh and the one thing I might suggest is don't walk around the block because the kids can't see you do it. Hmm. Like really genuinely think about it. You said the kids are one and four. Yeah. Is do couch time in a way where the kids can see you do it. And, and I bet the impact from that and, and keep a journal. <laughs> and I, I bet you will see less bickering among the kids um, better behavior, but figure then just call it couch time. And I love your idea of doing it at a high energy time of day. And the first time you do it, the kids are going to jump up on the couch because they're going to want to be a part of it. And just in a gentle way, they can put them back on the floor. Like, no, this is mommy and daddy time and let them watch. Mm-hmm. And you're not ignoring them, but w- have them watch you focus on each other. And I, if there is a, a single better parenting practice in the world, uh, you know, I'm I love that. convinced me otherwise. I love that. It's um another thing that we've been trying to, we have been doing is this annual review in our marriage. And <laughs> we write down, okay, last year you said this was important to me and the other way around. Yeah. Like for example, during 2016 and 2017, I was just, I was MIA with starting Debt Maven. I was just gone. Yeah and handed off the responsibilities to her, who, by the way, is a full-time lawyer, and my, my in-laws from China who were taking care of them, and I was just gone, and it was completely the wrong thing to do, and so I, you know, and she gave me that feedback in our annual review. She's like, you're never home for dinner, and then the oh. next year, I did, and but then we had that feedback or that regular checkup, like you're saying, like, you check your teeth, you check your car, but do we check your marriage and be open and honest on a regular scheduled basis? And that, that was really eye opening Cause I learned, and it's honestly a, a list of 99 things about me <laughs> and, what I, and what I need to do. Yeah. Um, but that was another practice that we've really tried to get more um, regular with. And it's really been insightful for on how we can be better partners and balanced. We got to schedule like a part two or part three. <laughs> I, there are so many questions I've written down. We didn't even cover, but this has been absolutely fantastic. Like, I can't thank you enough for taking the time for this. Oh, listen, man. Love talking about it. We went, we did some weird places, some non-equity places. Um, so be careful in the editing. I don't want to come across as like preachy. I certainly don't know the answer. Oh no, this and, is uh, unedited. Um, <laughs> and a lot of it is, you know, what I'm trying to do. Uh, versus what I've successfully done, but it's fun to talk about it and uh, and and to hear your thoughts on it as well. You're uh, you're thinking about all the right stuff, and uh, um, it, it, it's uh, it, it's fun to imagine back in the days when the kids were one and four because I was there as well. It seems like a million years ago. Uh, it's gonna be a long journey. Hopefully, 2021 will be better. <laughs> Even though, like this year has literally been the most fulfilling and happiest year of my personal or family's life 
because I mean, for a long list of reasons, it has not been financial. It is in, it it started off super rough, like didn't know if the business was going to survive kind of track. And then just everything we just realized, like, this is why we live. Like this has been an amazing year. I'm, I'm fundamentally an optimist and and I was just looking back on notes and, and how much hand wringing my generation did looking at my kids like, oh, you guys are lost in your social media, blah, blah, blah. You're like, and I feel like the silver lining of 2020 is it reminded us all how precious actual human interaction is. And I, and I, I think it is, I think it's going to change the way we interact. I hope it's going to change the way we interact each other with each other when we can get back together in a really positive way. Um, in a really positive way, take up, take away some of the distraction and, and remind us what the focus is. So I'm, I think we will be talking about 2020 for a really long time, and and I hope and, um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll continue to dwell on the positives of it. 